This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. As the nation continues to head into an election where Donald Trump, as of now, seems likely to be the next Republican presidential nominee, and according to polls, has a decent shot of beating President Joe Biden in November 2024, two pieces of news seem instructive. Now, one you may have missed from last Friday when Mr. Trump took to his social media platform and responded to a profile of outgoing Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley in the Atlantic magazine called The Patriot, describing the ways that Milley tried to guide the nation through the chaotic and dangerous period surrounding Trump's loss to Biden in November 2020. This included when learning that the Chinese military believed that Trump was going to order an attack against the Chinese in a phone call authorized by the then acting Secretary of Defense, General Milley sought to reassure the Chinese that no such attack was imminent. Trump took to Truth Social Friday and called Milley's action, quote, an act so egregious that in times gone by, the punishment would have been death, unquote. Death. That's right. A former president of the United States, who, well, may be the next president of the United States, suggesting in no uncertain terms that America's highest-ranking military official, a veteran of multiple combat tours in Afghanistan and in Iraq, deserves to be executed. A man whose followers have a troubling habit of flooding his perceived enemies with death threats. That happened. The second piece of news comes from the former top aide to Mark Meadows, Trump's Last White House Chief of Staff, Cassidy Hutchinson, the star witness in last summer's January 6th committee's hearing, her new book, Enough, published today. In the book, Hutchinson paints a picture of the closing days of the Trump White House even more chaotic, even more lawless than described in her shocking testimony. For example, what was Mark Meadows burning in the White House office fireplace. What was her reply when Meadows asked her whether she would take a bullet for Donald Trump? Hutchinson, as you might recall, was thrust into the national spotlight with her bombshell televised testimony before the January 6th committee. But that moment, that moment, her testimony, that almost never happened. She had already spoken to the committee twice behind closed doors. Ultimately, it was her third closed-door deposition when she chose to come forward and actually testify fully and honestly and openly about what she really saw and heard in the West Wing. Cassidy Hutchinson was a top aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, working a few steps away from the Oval Office and watching as her bosses reeled from the 2020 election loss and fought it with lies and wild schemes. I remember feeling scared and nervous for what could happen on January 6th. 
At just 26 years old, Hutchinson found herself a sudden star witness in the January 6th special committee's hearings in June 2022. Ms. Hutchinson was in a position to know a great deal about the happenings in the Trump White House. Her testimony was damning. President Trump had been raging for weeks after the election. I first noticed there was ketchup dripping down the wall and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry and had thrown his lunch against the wall. And then on January 6, 2021, she says she heard firsthand as the president brushed off concerns of protesters arriving with weapons. I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. President Trump returned to the White House after fiery remarks on the ellipse. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And so did several stunned Secret Service agents. She said Tony Ornato, then Deputy White House Chief of Staff, told her privately what happened in the presidential SUV. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Angle and... Mr. When Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. In the hours to come, she says, Mark Meadows struggled to get through to Trump. I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, You heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Hutchinson testified she was disgusted with what she saw that day. It was un-American. We were watching the Capitol building get defaced over a lie. Cassidy Hutchinson stayed with President Trump until the end of his term. The former president said he hardly knew her and that he personally turned down a request for her to go with his team to Florida. Committee transcripts later revealed the moral struggle she faced between speaking the truth to investigators and remaining loyal to Trump. After changing her attorney, she told investigators that her previous Trump-funded lawyer wanted her to diminish her role in the White House and tell the committee she did not recall certain events. Hutchinson says with those lawyers, she, quote, felt like Trump was looking over her shoulder. In the end, she chose to tell her story publicly and put what happened behind closed doors on record. Former President Donald Trump is now vying for another term in the White House, threatening to dismantle political norms, investigate his adversaries, and seek retribution for perceived slights. Cassidy Hutchinson today is warning we should believe him. Here's part one of our interview. Cassidy, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jake. So... A few years ago, uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, was a man you describe in your book as uh, adoring. And now you are doing this book tour in which you tell the story from childhood to your courageous testimony. And you are basically warning the world that he shouldn't be president ever again. Um, A, that's quite a journey. And B, why shouldn't he be president ever again? Well, I would like to start by saying that I came forward to testify because, one, that was what I was obligated to do. I swore an oath to protect and defend the United States, and that was what I was subpoenaed to do, and I 
was at a point where I had not been completely forthcoming with the committee charged with investigating the most grave attack on the United States in recent history. So I came forward not with the goal or anything other than providing people with the truth. I've seen how people are evading the truth and how people are not holding themselves accountable. And it was my duty as an American, as it is every American's duty, to hold themselves to the oath that they swear. Yeah. Um, But right now, the American people are going through uh, another election or about Mm -hmm. to. And we, Donald Trump is leading in the polls when it comes to the Republican primaries, even in in some polls when it comes to a head-to-head matchup with President Biden. The other day, Trump suggested that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the outgoing chairman, uh, General Mark Milley, committed treason. Uh, He suggested that capital punishment would be on the table or should be on the table. Um, When you see a message like that, how seriously do you take it? I mean, Milley has suggested to people, according to The Atlantic magazine, that he expects if Donald Trump is elected president again, that... Donald Trump will go try to go after him. Um, when you see that, do you think he means it? Or do you think, oh, that's just hot air? I do, Jake. I think that we have seen firsthand... You think, I do, he think he means it. Yeah, I, I, I do believe that he means it. Now, I, what, but what I would like to say to this is, I think for years we have not held Donald Trump accountable to, to the things that he says. And when he says those things, and when he strikes, when he strokes those vitriolic comments to people who have had profound careers defending our de- democracy, like General Milley, we need to take him seriously. People have been holding him accountable for the past years, but obviously not accountable enough because we are in a position right now where it's looking more likely than not that he could be the Republican nominee. And he has also been indicted four times. To me, it is sad that we're in this place as a country where we are looking at somebody who has ha- executed this horrible assault on our democracy, and we are continuing to give this person a platform. That's not what we should stand for as Americans. And I think that Donald Trump is the most grave threat that we will face to our our democracy in our lifetime and potentially in American history. When he says things like he wants to use the Department of Justice to go after his enemies, when he says things like he did on Truth Social the other day that he wants to curtail freedom of the press for certain channels and, and that sort of thing. You take him literally. You think he actually means it, and in a second term, he would do that. I think that Donald Trump in a second term does not have any, would not have guardrails. I think we saw that at the end of the first term with how things played out after he lost the election. He violated our Constitution in multiple ways. It is, it is completely fine to wage or to file lawsuits in sure. countries or in states. But what is not okay is when you threaten and assault the Constitution and our institutions of government. I would not put it past Donald Trump, Jake, it, to, to put those institutions of government in a worse position that they were in during the first term. So, as you noted, he's now facing 91 felony charges and four different investigations. Four, he's been indicted four times. You've testified in front of the Georgia grand jury. You were interviewed by federal investigators overseeing the January 6th investigation and indictment and the classified documents case and indictment. Um, How do you feel about the charges he's facing? I mean, I know you're not a lawyer, but I I know that you also read these documents. Um, When you look at the evidence and then when you hear his excuses or his defense, I mean, do you think he's guilty? I want to hold off on providing my personal opinions on that and only because, you know, I... 
And with the platform that I think we all should look towards and the platform, at least that I am trying to adopt in this era of my life is, you know, it is sometimes just as dangerous to speculate about what could be going on behind closed doors at the Justice Department. I am confident in our system of government, and I think that we have to leave it to the investigators to be able to collect the facts, and that is why I came forward and testified truthfully to all the investigations. I think that if he is convicted, then that is a conviction that we need to accept as Americans, and we need to trust our institutions of government. But I will say this too, Jake. I think these are the people that were running our government at the end of the Trump administration. Yeah, the, Very, most loyal, the most loyal of loyal Trump people. The most loyal of loyal Trump people and who have also been indicted. Some, some people, some of these individuals have also been indicted. We have to think, what would a second Trump term look like? Would these be the people that are running the government, the people that are currently facing indictments? Who would work for Donald Trump in a second term? That's the question that we need to be asking, or asking ourselves going into this election season. Well, let's talk about um, Mark Meadows, who was the White House chief of staff. And you were basically the chief of staff to the chief of staff. Um, you write in your book that in one of the first conversations you had with Meadows in the White House, he said to you, Cass, if I can get through this job and manage to keep him out of jail, meaning Donald Trump, I'll have done a good job. Um, a, when he said that, did you, did you think he meant that literally? And, and B, do you think that your testimony might actually result in Donald Trump going to jail? In that moment when Mark said that to me, it was more of a wake-up call, a moment where I sort of felt frightened, frightened for the first time, but also concerned about Mark. You know, when you're in this job, and I think people, it's, it's difficult to put this into words, especially if you don't have people who are willing to be forthcoming and honest about the positions that you occupy, occupy in government. But, you know, especially in the, the Trump administration and in 2020, every day was a hair on fire day. We were swimming to stay afloat, but most of us were drowning. So when Mark said that that day, I was alarmed because it was one of those moments for me where I was thinking, like, I, I thought that I had a grasp on what was going on and I realized I didn't. But I did take Mark seriously in that moment. And in that moment, for me, in my service to Mark, I wanted to make sure that I did whatever I could to help Mark achieve his goal. Um, to keep Trump out of jail. Correct. And But that's also something that I worked through a lot in the book was it's, it's not the staff's job to control a president who might end up in prison. I think that's one of the more unfortunate things that we have sort of gravitate, gravitated to as a, as a society, where this is normal now. The, it, it's not normal, but it has been perceived as being normal now. Um, what was the other question? Well, the other question was, um, <laughs> do you think that your testimony might ultimately result in Donald Trump going, going to prison? I came forward to testify with the information that I knew, and most of the information that I knew could be corroborated, corroborated by other people. I hope that what I testified to would cause other people to come forward and testify truthfully. So you and Meadows were close at one point, I know. Um, and in the Georgia case, uh, as you noted, uh, kind of, you alluded to, uh, he's now facing criminal charges. Um, he has pleaded uh, not guilty. Uh, let's show uh, the mugshot uh, of Mark Meadows. When you see that photo, and that, that's that's... I mean, in some ways, I'm sure for people who, who, who love Mark Meadows or who loved him at one time, that's a tragic photo for other people who don't like Mark Meadows. It's not, I'm sure. What goes through your mind when you look at that picture? I see someone that didn't have to be in this position. You know, I, I, 
I see that picture and I, I feel sorry for him in some ways because he had a lot of opportunities to do the right thing and to come forward. You know, he's a man that has a family. And that's also another unfortunate impact of all of this is when, Don, when you are in Donald Trump's circle and you have that loyalty to him, it impacts more your life in more ways than one can imagine. And, you know, I, I hope that Mark's doing the right thing if he hasn't already been doing the right thing as what I define the right thing. You hope he's cooperating I, I with hope the investigators. I hope that he would cooperate and uphold the oath that he swore because he knows a lot more than I know about what happened during the November 2020 through January 2021 period. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he's cooperating with the Georgia case, but it's this. We don't know if he's cooperating with federal investigators. That seems to be this unanswered question. Um, looking at the Republican Party going forward uh, and whether or not the Republican Party nominates Donald Trump, he's clearly far and ahead in the lead uh, in polls right now. But I want to play this moment from the first Republican primary debate. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Uh, That's the first debate. The second one is tomorrow. And basically the only candidates that said they would not support Donald Trump if he were a felon, a convicted felon, uh, were Asa Hutchinson and Chris Christie. Asa Hutchinson did not make uh, the debate stage for tomorrow night. So Chris Christie will be the only Republican candidate on the debate stage tomorrow night who said he would not vote for Donald Trump if he were a convicted felon. And he's also really the only one who's been outspoken in his criticism of Donald Trump when it comes to January 6th. What does it say to you about, about Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party? Well, I want to point out something that's really critical that you just said, Jake, and that's that if Donald Trump is tried and convicted, that wasn't asking if he... It, Brett Bayer did not ask if he is g- still going through the trial. Right, indicted. Right, yeah. If he is a convicted felon. And the, the, the counts that Donald Trump is currently facing, he is facing counts of obstructing the Constitution. To me, that is disqualifying. Donald Trump should be disqualified for being the president of, of the United States. To me, that's not a question. When I watched that, then I watched that debate and I was hopeful about several of the candidates on that stage. I thought a lot of them had good forward thinking answers. And I could at that in the beginning of the debate, I could sort of see a light at the end of the tunnel. With Who this. besides uh, your fellow New Jersey uh, uh, resident, uh, Chris Christie? I, I had a lot of hope with Nikki Haley. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that she had very intelligent and well fleshed out answers on things. Um, even Mike Pence, though, I was really disappointed when I saw Mike Pence raise his hand. And, you know, Jake, I think Donald Trump has such a grip on these people. And sometimes I can't quite put my finger on why. Why is it so easy for these people to go along with this? Why is it so people, why is it so easy for these people to say that what he's doing is okay? Because to me, in that moment, they're saying that they're conceding that they're okay with waging a war on our Constitution. That is not a Republican value. That is not a that is not an American value. Those are the types of candidates that we're looking at for 2024, though. Um, I want to ask you about Kevin McCarthy. You at one point were very close to him in the book. You call him Kevin. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're on a first name basis with him. He wasn't the speaker at the time, but he was the House majority leader. I'm sorry, minority leader for the Republicans. But near the end of the book, you write about being um, disillusioned with McCarthy. You say I started to sense a significant shift in Kevin. Uh, What's this shift? What, What happened to McCarthy in your view? 
I think that Kevin had an opportunity after January 6th, as did Mitch McConnell, as did all the elected officials in Congress that are, are Republicans, to denounce what happened on January 6th and work against Trump still having a stronghold on the Republican Party. Kevin was fairly outspoken in the days after January 6th about how it was wrong. But then after we, uh, the former president left office, McCarthy went down to Mar-a-Lago. And to me, that was sort of the beginning of that transformation where we kind of were able to observe that nothing's going to change. You know, I, I still have a lot of respects for Kevin. Um, I hope for the best for him as the speaker, especially as we see the chaos that's happening on Capitol Hill right now. But I, I'm not confident that he's a good leader for the Republican Party because he is a talking head for Donald Trump. Kevin hasn't taken a strong stand against it. And I'm confident that Kevin knows all of this is wrong. You know, a few days after the election, McCarthy, and, and look, you were in the White House and I'm, I'm sure you didn't see everything. But just a few days after the election, Thankfully. He, he went on, Kevin McCarthy went on Fox and said Donald Trump won in a landslide. Mm-hmm. I mean, but the he, day of the... It, the day of January 6th, he also... He voted to, uh, yeah, to, to disenfranchise off, too, Pennsylvania and Arizona. I mean, he was part of the big lie along with everybody else. No you're, no, you're not wrong on that, Jake. But I think even if we look at the Senate with Senator McConnell, they brought an impeachment trial against the former president. If Senator McConnell had wanted to get the 10 votes, we would not be facing this issue right now. He could have likely whipped 10 votes in the Senate to make sure that Donald Trump could never be president again. And this is just the plague that is, has unfortunately infiltrated throughout the entire Republican Party. And I'm not confident that the Republican Party is going to continue to exist, at least the Republican Party that I have known and the Republican Party that I originally came to be a part of. So let's, let's talk about January 6th, because one of the things you really brought to everyone's attention in your testimony was how much Donald Trump wanted to go to the Capitol on January 6th, demanded to go to the Capitol on January 6th. And I think one of the big questions that I have is why? What did he want to do at the Capitol? You know, I, I can't speculate. I heard several things. You several can speculate. You, you, have, you have more information. I, I, but you I, know but I could, but that wouldn't be responsible because I, I, definitively I don't know what he wanted but to what, do that like, What are some ideas? What I, what I would know that is he... There was a reason that he wanted to go to the Capitol. There was a reason he wanted to be with his supporters. And Donald Trump also knows the impact that his words have. And he knows the impact that his presence has on his supporters. He knows that he himself riles people up. He knew that the crowd was armed that day. He knew that there were people angry about this. So I, knowing Donald Trump, knowing what I knew inside the White House, that was not a mistake. He did not want to just go to the Capitol to go there and make a little speech and then go back to the White House. There isn't a reason that he wanted to go there. And again, I would like to restate that Donald Trump knows the impact of his words. So when he, on January 6th, when he wanted to go to the Capitol, everything, that, that was intentional. The Mark Milley tweet that you earlier mentioned from this past weekend, he knows the impact that those words will have. He knows that people will come out and be violent against these people. Yeah. And that's what he wants. Yeah. I mean, there will be there will be if there are not already death threats against Millie because oh, absolutely. He's, yeah. Um, during the Capitol attack, you heard Meadows say that then President Trump didn't want to do anything to stop it. Um, we heard the chants, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. Um, and, and what did Meadows say about hang, hang Mike Pence? What did you overhear? This is when the former White House counsel came into our office and Pat had said that Pat Cipollone, Pat had said that 
they needed to go down to the Oval Dining Room where the president was, the rioters had gotten into the Capitol. And Mark had relayed to Pat Cipollone something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat, he doesn't, he doesn't, want, to, he doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't want to do anything. Despite what Cassidy Hutchinson witnessed on January 6th, she continued to show up to work the very next day. Our conversation will pick up there right after this quick break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days In, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. And we're back with our politics lead, Cassidy Hutchinson, today, just minutes ago, telling me why she found it so difficult to break away from Trump world and what she feared would happen if she had not. So on the morning of, of January 7th, you still went to work. I did. And this is, this is one of the things that I think um, that some of your critics on the left or, you know, never Trumpers uh, who are Republicans say, like, you know, you, you see your friend Alyssa Griffin, mm-hmm. Alyssa Fair Griffin, go on TV. She's denouncing January 6th. Sarah Matthews, Stephanie Grisham, Secretary DeVos, Secretary Chow, others resigned that day. Secretary Mnuchin, you write in your book, was considering invoking the 25th Amendment. You continued to work there. Tell me why you went back, because obviously you feel very passionately about this and you've been very brave in your testimony. But you still, on January 7th, went back to work. No, I did. And, you know, I, I wish I had a glossy and short cookie cutter answer for you, Jake, but you know, it's something that I still struggle with to this day, but I will say, and I, I would like to also reference what Alyssa did on that day, Alyssa Farrah Griffin. I remember sitting in the office and I, I, I was very outspoken on January 6th and every day after that I strongly disagreed with right, what Right, internally, happened. yes. Correct, correct, internally. But when I saw Alyssa on TV that day, it was this moment for me where I sort of felt that split because on one hand I was very upset with her. You know, she was one of my closest friends and I was upset with her for a variety of reasons. But the one that I think is the most potent for this conversation is I felt that she, what she did that day was disloyal. Right. And saying that now with the hindsight and the experience that I've had sounds ludicrous. Well, but, but it's an honest answer. I but it, but it is. And it, but I, 
And I think that's the important part of this transformation period for me. Because on the other hand, when I saw her there, there, there was a little bit of envy. You know, I, I was proud of her for doing what she felt that she had to be doing and for using her voice. And I give Alyssa a lot of credit. You know, I, I eventually came to her side and she was the one that welcomes me. She was the first person that actually welcomed me and helped me get to this point. But I say all of this, Jake, because I, I did struggle with what I should do. I had committed to moving to Florida with the former president. And again, it's that push-pull inside of me where on one hand, I felt that January 6th happened because we, the staff, didn't do enough to stop it. That we, the staff, should have not let people around him that would have stroked this desire for him to overturn the election on January 6th. Now you say in the book that you felt complicit. I mean, you're but honest I, about Correct, that. yes. But then there's, this, there's the other side of me where I... I was afraid to look disloyal. I was afraid to split from the world because once you're in that environment and have the access and have the insight and knowledge that you do, you sort of feel like there's a target on your back. So I, I, I did not move to Florida with him, but I stayed on payroll with him for several months after the end of the administration. Um, and I still had that the, the moral dilemma inside of me through that, through that whole period. So it's, it's a pu- push-pull of the one poll is... Um, doing the right thing. Correct. And then the, the other pole is loyalty and fear. Correct. Is that right? That, that's, that's fairly accurate. I also would like to say, though, you know, I, before I was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee, I, I did work to slowly start to separate. I wanted to start a new chapter in my career because I disagreed with not only what happened on January 6th, but I saw the trajectory of Republican politics. And I didn't want to be a direct part of that for the most part. Again, it was difficult. And I, I'm not trying to make excuses. I, I, I don't have a hero's complex over here. I, I know a lot of what I did was wrong, but you know, I got to where I am today. Um, but it was an important year for me because I was able to look back and reflect on things that, one, that I was complicit in, but also understand the dangers of what we were doing at the White House. So there are a couple of things in the book that I just want to ask you quick questions about you write about Mark Meadows burning documents in the fireplace in the chief of staff's office. Now, he has said or a spokesman has said this was not about documents. They were just using newspaper to get the fire going. Uh, I, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. What, what do you think he was actually burning there? Was it newspaper? I... I can't speak to what exactly he was burning, I, but I am confident that it wasn't just newspaper. Do you think he was burning documents? I mean, you, su- you suggest in the book that what he was doing could have been a violation of the Presidential Records Act. It could have been, yes. Um, you write about being at a Trump rally in Georgia, and Trump asks Meadows to meet with Hunter Biden's old business partner, Tony, partner, Tony Bubuleski. You write, quote, I had a weird feeling that we were in danger. I couldn't explain it, but the feeling was real. Why was, why was the White House chief of staff meeting with Tony Bobolesky? You're asking me the same question that I've asked myself since that I night. I mean, it's so random. That was, that was also, a, right, because we had been in public with Tony Bobolinsky a yeah. few weeks before at the Nashville debates. So the fact that Trump and his associates were in contact. But they were, were meeting secretly, right? Se- in secretly, this yes. I mean, when Mark got off the plane, actually, it was the campaign official that asked that they need, needed to convene a private meeting away from everybody's prying eyes. Um, you know, I don't have the answer to that. I didn't ask Mark, but Mark, after we left 
I wasn't in, I couldn't overhear what they were talking about, but Mark, I walked away with Mark. And Mark said something to me that, you know, reaffirming my loyalty to him. Um, yeah. And it just left this unsettling feeling in me in that moment that, you know, there were things going on that were beyond my purview and that I wasn't sure what we were doing, but I knew that it wasn't right. Another example of this category of things beyond your purview that felt wrong to you, um, Meadows takes what you believe is a classified binder, Crossfire Hurricane, which is the uh, Trump-Russia investigation, um, and um, he takes it to two far-right media figures who basically tow the MAGA party line, um, and Cipollone tells you there's classified information in that to get it back, and you get it back. Um, Meadows said, I don't personally get it back. But, but it, it gets brought it, back. It, it, it brought gets brought back. back. Not uh, in binders, by the way. It was unbound by, unbound. by the time okay. it back. But, but um, Meadows says, no, everything he gave had been unclassified by Trump. Well, I would say uh, there's a reason those documents were brought back. And I, I would... That's a very dubious response, in my opinion, because one, we got those documents back for a reason, and two, those documents still have not been fully declassified by the Justice Department. Yeah, I mean, that's a potential law, break, um, law violation. If you Correct, did. and that yeah. is also, show, it goes to show how there's a mentality, there was a mentality in the Trump administration of being frivolous with some of our, nation, with some, with some of our country's most sensitive national security secrets. And do we really want people like that back in power? One of, one of the other things that's, uh, that you overhear Trump say is when the Supreme Court refuses to hear that case from Texas, that wild case from Texas that has all these lies and things from Ken Paxson, the attorney general of Texas. Um, And Trump is livid. Mm -hmm. uh, And he starts yelling at Meadows. We should have made more calls. We should have done this. We should have done that. I don't know exactly what could have been done. It's a Supreme Court. But um, then Trump says, I don't want people to know we lost. It's embarrassing. I mean, that's potentially of significance legally if he no, knows that he lost correct but you know that's and i elaborate this on this in my testimony too where you know i i can't climb inside the former president's mind and know exactly what he was thinking but it's not just me that has come forward with information like that general general milley has also said that he was in the former president's presence when he admitted that he lost Alyssa farrah griffin as well you know, I, I can't speculate about his actual mindset and his motivations behind this, but in that moment, it was clear to me that there was some concession. And I would also like to point out, Jake, that the president directed Mark to begin declassifying the Crossfire Hurricane documents before January 6th happened because he was worried that it, those documents would never get declassified under a Biden administration. So, you know, there's there was a mentality in that era of just chaos, to be frank. And it's happening in the West Wing of the White House. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't lost on people that Joe Biden had won the election and that he had won the election and it was a free and fair election. But yet January 6th still happened. One of the things I wonder, because you talk about this, this journey, and I don't want to belittle it, but it does sound like leaving a cult. I mean, it really does, because it's like difficult for you to leave. You're talking about loyalty and you're talking about fear of what happens to you if you leave. 
Uh, and you're also talking about like doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not trying to belittle it at all, but it does sound like when people talk about leaving a cult, it does sound like that. Um, but then there also is this inflection point where uh, you're basically told you're not coming down to Florida mm-hmm. uh, to join to, to to join the president's staff at because Mar-a-Lago, the which is too bad. The president thought that was insufficiently loyal. Yeah, because you're insufficiently loyal. I guess they thought you were leaking some stuff, which, by the way, maybe you would have help them avoid the classified document scandal because you're... I did my best in everything that I was asked, Jake. (laughs) So, but one of the things I wonder is, do you ever think that if they had let you go down to Mar-a-Lago, what would have happened? Like, would you you have testified? You would have been subpoenaed probably, but like, Mm -hmm. would history have turned out differently? Would the push-pull still have gone on? Would you still have done the right thing if you were down in Mar-a-Lago? Like, what is that alternative history? I guess my short answer is I don't know because that's not what played it's out. It's not what happened. Obviously, Correct. you did the right but, thing. You did the right thing. I, I, I don't, I, I don't I mean to belittle it. I, no, no, you're not belittling it. Look, just, I haven't been, ever been – you say this. I have not been in a, a, a cult. I mean, we can sit here and debate whether the MAGA movement is a cult. And no, no, I don't, topic, but, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. The no, way you describe I, it is. sounds <laughs> like it. Um, but what I will say on that is I – I would hope that I would have come forward to do the right thing still. But when you're in that environment, it becomes a lot more difficult. And I did get brought back into that environment. And for a short period of time, when I first began doing my depositions with the committee, but I didn't feel empowered to comply completely. And also, Jake, if I'm being completely candid and frank, you know, I, I still felt that loyalty to him yeah. at the end of the administration. And I I worry that if I had gone down to Florida, that that would have only grown and I would not have come forward. And whether or not my what I testified to changes the trajectory of any investigation, I fulfilled what I was obligated to do under the oath that I swore to protect and defend the Constitution and the country. And I fulfilled the obligations of my subpoena. So to me, this is not about what I did and the impact that it has. For me, it's more about I was able to maintain my character and my integrity after I retained new legal counsel who empowered me and showed me the importance of telling the whole truth. So anybody that finds themselves in a situation like that, you know, I would just encourage them to listen to your conscience. And this this moment's much bigger than us. So I guess the question, the big question then is this. Um, What you did was the right thing no question. But it was also, I think it's fair to say, more difficult, right? And there probably are other Trump people who want to do the right thing, but they have their own Trump world lawyers, like you had, telling them to say, I don't recall, I don't recall, I don't recall, even though they could recall. And they're stuck. Um, why would they do the right thing? Do you regret doing the right thing ever? No, no. Why not? I mean, I'm glad you did the right thing. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. You don't have to. Look, I'm not asking for anybody to... No, I think it's important to acknowledge that you did the right thing, but that's not the easier thing. No, that's correct. And I also want to be clear, though, like, as I was writing the book with my fantastic collaborator, Mark Salter, who worked for John McCain for decades, um, and Mark and I had this conversation a lot, too, though, about... Like what it actually meant to break from Trump world. And Mark and I had a lot of profound conversations about this mentality that I still had to break. 
I didn't write this book with the intention of trying to convince people that I did the right thing. I wrote this book with the intention to show my journey. And I, I don't love the word journey. It sounds a little like The Bachelor, but the journey that I had of being a Trump world insider. I'm, I'm not a Democrat. I still consider myself a Republican. I, but I don't consider myself part of what the Republican Party largely identifies with today, which is the Trump Republican Party, in, in my opinion. Um, but in this period for me, you know, I, I've never once doubted my decision to come forward and be truthful and be honest. And I had a conversation with a member of Congress who is a Republican member of Congress that did not serve on the January 6th committee. Oh, this is the person with the pseudonym in your book? Yes, Sam. Sam, right. Uh, now, I've been very, very open with Sam throughout this period about how I was struggling. Um, and we were on the phone one night, and Sam told me, he was like, go look in the mirror. So I'll stay on the phone, go look in the mirror. This is before you this made is, your big decision. Correct. This yeah. is before I started backshining to do guess. Um, and I'm looking in the mirror, I'm on the phone with Sam, and he said to me, do you like what you're looking at? You're the only person that has to live with yourself for the rest of your life. Nobody else has to. Do you like what you're looking at? I don't mean your appearance, Cassidy. I mean, do you like the person that you are? And I hadn't liked who I was for a while. And I knew in that moment that I, I had to correct course for myself and come back to the person that I wanted to be and the person that I thought I, I saw myself becoming when I entered public service. The book is enough. The author is Cassidy Hutchinson. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank really you. appreciate it. I appreciate it. So much to discuss. The panel is here. It's a great panel. I'm going to get their reaction. We got Kinzinger, we got Farrah Griffin, we got Collins, we got Gangel. Squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. And sticking with our politics lead is Donald Trump's former White House aide, Cassidy Hutchinson, today tells me Donald Trump, quote, Donald Trump is the most grave threat we will face in our democracy. Our panel uh, is here. Um, uh, I want to begin by getting everyone short, quick, initial takeaway. What, what, what the biggest revelation from the interview, what'd you think? Uh, I think her, her self, her look at herself and her, and her honesty, that was my biggest takeaway from that. What'd you think, Alyssa? I would say same, actually, because there's so many juicy nuggets and really important historical elements in this book. But she shows something we haven't seen in so many of the men who served in the White House, um, many members on Capitol Hill who still defend the former president, was this self-reflection and this kind of waking up to say, what is my role in history? What am I doing when something needs to be done? And you just see that in her in a way that is so missing in our politics. Yeah, that's right. She's taken more responsibility for January 6th than, yeah. like, <laughs> She's the bearing the weight than of literally that. any of the defendants. Yeah, exactly. What do yeah. you think? Well, and tying to that, I mean, the difference in how she speaks now and how she spoke out with the January 6th committee and the difference of who's paying her legal fees is something that I was thinking about while watching that because obviously that's something we're talking about now with the Trump investigations and how she was... And you pressed her on this, you know, if your critics say, well, your credibility, given what you wanted to do then, what you're doing now, and such a difference it makes in the fact that it was a Trump-paid, a Trump-packed paid attorney, and then now when she had her own attorney, how she felt like she could come forward and speak more freely about what she really saw and really witnessed. Two things that may have an impact on the legal case. One is that she heard him say the words that he knew he lost. Yeah. And he was embarrassed. Uh -huh. That is very credible. Mm -hmm. The second is, Jake, when she talked about, uh, when you asked her about why he went up to the Capitol 
And she talked about the fact that he knows the impact his words are going to have on his followers. And she said, I think this is almost a direct quote, that he he knew people would be violent. And that is what he wants. Yeah. Uh, she made a reference towards the end, and I mentioned this in the digital piece uh, I did uh, about the book. But Alyssa, there is a section of the book, she called it back-channeling. Um, between her second interview behind closed doors and her third interview behind closed doors, she's still being represented by a Trump lawyer. So she still has to watch what she says. She goes and has a glass of wine or two with you at your, Georgetown, your former Georgetown house. And you guys come up with a way for the truth to come out. Tell us what that is. Because she alludes to it, but you kind of have to read between the lines in the book. Yeah, she came to me after her first two testimonies and uh, said, there's more I need to say. I don't know how to go about it. We got together and over the course of hours of talking about different scenarios, and she frankly sat me down and kind of laid out what she knew. And it was it was damning, whether it's the burning of documents, whether it's the thinking Mike Pence, the president, former president, thinking Mike Pence should have be hung, things that are incredibly important for history and also the criminal investigations. And what we ultimately came up with is I said, what if I can take this information to Congresswoman Liz Cheney and see if she can call you back? And in the meantime, we can look at trying to get your representation pro bono. Luckily, she found fabulous attorneys who represented her pro bono. And what I, you can't forget in this, 25 years old at the time, did not, not somebody who comes from money, not somebody who had some high-paying job, could barely make ends meet and still did the right thing when men with bigger titles and bigger salaries did not. And, and Congressman Kinzinger, what happens is she does this interview still being represented by this Trump paid attorney who's telling her, just say, I don't recall, I don't recall. And all of a sudden, Liz Cheney knows all this stuff and is asking her about all this yeah, stuff brilliant. because of this back channeling. I called Adam, too. And, yeah. and Pasatino's like, how does how does she know all this? Somebody yeah. must be talking. Thank God you guys didn't like anchor on me for that one though, because this <laughs> did way better. Um, no, I mean it's 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 brilliant. It's a brilliant way to do it, and I don't want to over or underestimate whichever the right estimate is uh, the impact of a cost of a lawyer, yeah. and especially as Alyssa said, when you're barely making ends meet, and the lawyer without telling you tells you, look. Here's what we need you to do. And this is all free. You don't have to worry. You get a pass. And, and there are going to be many people, I wish they had the courage to speak out like she did, that will talk about the fact that, you know, I had to say no comment or I can't remember because I just couldn't afford a lawyer. Lawyers around here, by the way, are really expensive, especially around D.C. Really? And we should point out that uh, Stefan Passantino underlines that he never told her to perjure herself. And she says he never told me to perjure myself. But it's also said that she says that he wrote, he said, I don't recall is not perjury. And it certainly seems as though he was not trying to get her to cooperate. Yeah, I mean, well, and there's so much that she knew. I mean, and the pattern. I mean, look what's happening right now in the classified documents mm-hmm. case in Florida. I mean, does that not have complete echoes of that? When now we know Yusel Tavares, one of the employees there, is cooperating. And it all came down to he didn't have the money to pay for uh, an attorney in that sense. And so we're seeing this play out. And that's why I think the impact of this is so, so important, because it's what what she said, what she testified. She was easily the star witness. And that could have potentially never happened had that relationship continued, had that conversation not happened, had she not come forward talking about, you know, the carelessness with which they treated classified documents, which we now know about. But to see how they talked about it on that final day, that it was distressing to the White House counsel's office in the Trump world of how they how Mark Meadows was handling classified documents. It just reverberates to what we're even following now with these investigations. Now, um, we didn't get into it in the in the interview, but obviously the story that she told that was hearsay 
uh, in, the, in her testimony, which was um, Ornato and Bobby Engel, the Secret Service guys, uh, former Secret Service guy in terms of the deputy White House chief of staff, telling her the story about Trump lunging. Uh, they deny it. They say they don't recall. They say they don't recall. Now, she's, oh, she's only testified. She says she wasn't there. They told her the story. I personally don't doubt that they told her the story. Now, maybe they were, you know, just BSing with her. I don't know. But what's interesting is one's, one assumes that they have testified before Jack Smith, the special counsel. Now, we don't know for sure one way or the other, but Jack Smith is investigating and has indicted the president on January 6 charges. Uh, and one assumes that they have been forced to say one way or another uh, under oath. Okay. There are a couple of things wherever there have been discrepancies. If you look closely at what people have said, there's a lot of I don't recall or that's not my recollection. I think it's important to also remember that she testified under oath to the committee and she has no reason not to tell the truth with everything she's been through. Why would she make something like and, this? And the, the, the Trump people, after she testified, after anybody testified willingly, they tried to assassinate her character. Do you remember after the, the story about the limo, they went after her and said, this is a complete lie. She's lying. She's a liar. You know, she lies. They try to intimidate you out of doing that. And she wasn't intimidated. And that is to say way more than, as you alluded at the beginning of this, to like 99% of the men in the Trump administration. Yeah. What was the significance, do you think, uh, Alyssa, of her testimony? I mean, it was beyond critical. I think that, um, and by the way, before the live testimony, she was cooperating both with the January 6th committee and then ultimately DOJ. I think she played a fundamental yes. role in the indictments of the former president. But also keep in mind, 13 million people watched her testify live. That was before the midterms. I think there was an impact there in how people perceived the Republican Party. I think it did have an impact with voters who did not know what was happening in the final days of the election. I think she also probably forced other people to come forward and tell the truth, right? She did. Yeah, she did. And, and you notice we kind of had a slew of people willing to come forward after that, both because she has made comments that, you know, are around them. So like, yeah, OK, I'll tell the truth. And secondarily, because there were a lot of people that felt shame that she could do it and they couldn't. Yeah. A 25, 26 year old yeah. uh, young woman with no real wealth uh, right. to her name. Uh, we have much more to discuss. We're going to get reaction from another former Trump White House official. Plus, how Cassidy Hutchinson's comments and testimony and even her book might play in a court of law. We're going to get into all of that. That's next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Leading this hour, Cassidy Hutchinson. She was essentially the chief of staff to the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, in the Trump White House. She was 
in the room for much of the controversy that has led to indictments against Donald Trump and many others right now. She saw Trump's behavior firsthand. She knows about the text messages sent among circles inside and outside the White House. Republicans who begged Trump to do something to stop the January 6th riots, but those same people would get on TV and make up, a, make up a case to challenge the 2020 election results, knowing that Trump lost. And Cassidy Hutchinson says Trump, too, knew he lost. In an interview today, she told me Donald Trump would be a threat to democracy if he should win again. Take a listen. People have been holding him accountable for the past years, but obviously not accountable enough because we are in a position right now where it's looking more likely than not that he could be the Republican nominee. And he has also been indicted four times. To me, it is sad that we're in this place as a country where we are looking at somebody who has executed this horrible assault on our democracy and we are continuing to give this person a platform. That's not what we should stand for as Americans. And I think that Donald Trump is the most grave threat that we will face to our democracy in our lifetime and potentially in American history. Again, to underscore that, the chief of staff to the chief of staff in Donald Trump's White House believes that Donald Trump is the most grave threat to democracy in our lifetimes and potentially in American history. I also asked Hutchinson about what seemed to be a threat that Donald Trump recently made on Friday to the outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, a combat veteran of Afghanistan in Iraq, in a post last week referring to Milley's phone calls with his Chinese counterparts in the final days of Trump's administration. Trump wrote on Truth Social that in times gone by, quote, the punishment would have been death in all caps, exclamation point. I asked Hutchinson, how seriously should Americans take these sorts of comments by Trump? Take a listen. I do believe that he means it. Now, what what I would like to say to this is, I think for years we have not held Donald Trump accountable to, to the things that he says. And when he says those things and when he strikes, when he strokes those vitriolic comments to people who have had profound careers defending our democracy, like General Milley. We need to take him seriously. There was also a moment in the interview when I asked Hutchinson about the mugshot from Georgia of her former boss, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, with whom she was once quite close. What goes through your mind when you look at that picture? I see someone that didn't have to be in this position you know, I, I, I see that picture and I, I feel sorry for him in some ways because he had a lot of opportunities to do the right thing and to come forward. You know, he's a man that has a family. And that's also another unfortunate impact of all of this is when, Don, when you are in Donald Trump's circle and you have that loyalty to him, it impacts more your life in more ways than one can imagine. And, you know, I... I hope that Mark's doing the right thing if he hasn't already been doing the right thing as what I define the right thing. In her book out today, Enough, Cassidy Hutchinson writes about having once been close with now speaker Kevin McCarthy. In fact, in the book, she refers to him as Kevin. I asked what she thinks of Kevin's leadership today. You write about being um, disillusioned with McCarthy. You say, I started to sense a significant shift 
in Kevin. Uh, what's the shift? What, what happened to McCarthy in your view? I think that Kevin had an opportunity after January 6th, as did Mitch McConnell, as did all the elected officials in Congress that are, are Republicans, to denounce what happened on January 6th and work against Trump still having a stronghold on the Republican Party. Kevin was fairly outspoken in the days after January 6th about how it was wrong. But then after we, uh, the former president left office, McCarthy went down to Mar-a-Lago. And to me, that was sort of the beginning of that transformation where we kind of were able to observe that nothing's going to change. You know, I, I still have a lot of respects for Kevin. Um, I hope for the best for him as the speaker, especially as we see the chaos that's happening on Capitol Hill right now. But I, I'm not confident that he's a good leader for the Republican Party because he is a talking head for Donald Trump. I want to turn now to former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who worked during the Trump administration and, of course, uh, was warning us about Donald Trump uh, long before a lot of other people. Ambassador Bolton, uh, good to see you. You heard uh, Hutchinson describing a Trump White House, perhaps even more chaotic uh, than many of our viewers previously knew. Uh, Although for you, I would imagine, maybe not so dissimilar from your experience. Yeah, a lot of it sounds like another day at the office, but I mean, her portrayal, I look forward to, to reading the book, I think is devastating and uh, added to all the evidence that's, uh, that's out there shows why uh, Trump is not fit to be president. He wasn't fit the first time and uh, he's not fit for a second time. Uh, what, what we need is a way to persuade other Republicans that, uh, that, that the danger that, uh, that Trump poses. Hutchinson said that that Trump, in her view, is the greatest threat to democracy in our lifetime, maybe even uh, in American history. Uh, What do you think? No, I I, look, I I don't I think it's important not to overstate the nature of the threat or understate it. You got to be cold blooded about it, because if if you're off, you're going to propose remedies that are wrong. This is a strong country. The institutions are strong. Uh, and Trump has been revealed as an aberration and a threat. We're all warned about it. Look, Rome didn't fall, the Roman Republic didn't fall uh, overnight. It took Catiline and then Sulla and then Pompey and then finally you get to Caesar, although it gags me to think of comparing Trump to Julius Caesar. But, but that was, those institutions were weaker than ours. I think we've got to have faith in the people uh, for the protection of the Constitution because the remedies that some will propose uh, will be as bad as the cure. But Hutchinson, her, her basic argument is that if Trump wins again, if Trump wins in 2024, he will stock his administration with no guardrails. There will not be a General Milley or a General Kelly or a General McMaster or a John Bolton. It will be all sycophants. It will be all Stephen Millers and Sebastian Gorkas. Does that argument concern you? Sure. Look, I think it's almost certain that the top level of the second Trump term will be the bottom level on January the 20th, 2021, and then it will go downhill from there. But the consequence doesn't mean that the government will then be under his control. I think one of the greatest dangers that a second Trump term brings would be constitutional crisis. Who is he going to nominate to be attorney general? And when the attorney general gives an order from Trump, let's say one of Trump's favorites, let's prosecute John Kerry for violating the Logan Act, uh, 
and the attorney general uh, asks some of the career people to do that, and they say no, and they resign, and the entire Department of Justice begins to resign. Uh, what happens when he gives illegal orders to the career military, uh, and they start to resign? That that that's I think that's what we're going to have is not so much the threat of Trump uh, asserting his authority as the the breaking down of institutions. I think a, a very obvious candidate for attorney general in a Trump administration would be uh, the attorney general of Texas, Ken Paxton. Um, but while we're on the subject of these hypotheticals, on Friday, uh, Trump posted to his Truth Social social media account uh, basically an argument uh, that outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, uh, in days of past should, would have been executed uh, because um, in the closing days of the Trump uh, presidency, Milley, uh, according to press accounts, uh, learned that China had received intelligence that Trump was going to attack. And he called China and said, we're not going to attack you. Please, you know, please don't think that we're going to do that. Trump took offense uh, to this uh, and, and said, you know, he's invoking capital punishment uh, for this. And we know from The Atlantic magazine that Milley is very, Milley is convinced, according to The Atlantic, that that uh, if Trump were to win, he would he would actually pursue prosecution against him. There are a lot of people uh, who feel that way. And do, do you not think that that is a serious proposition, that that would actually happen? Well, I think it, I think it is a serious proposition. He tried to put me in jail for, for publishing the book. Uh, but but the, the question is, just because Trump tries to do it, do you think the institutions uh, simply dissolve? I, I don't think that happens. And I think as long as you still have an independent judiciary, a lot of people may run up a lot of legal fees, but it will result in uh, the, the country turning against Trump. And, and we'll see how this plays out. You know, he's got to get people confirmed uh, by a Senate that's going to be closely divided, even if you have a majority of Republicans. And I think uh, how his nominees fare, many of whom will be grossly unqualified, uh, and Ken Paxton may, may have faced his own uh, criminal trial by then, uh, it's, it's not a foregone conclusion that Trump gets his way. I, I am unalterably opposed to him getting the Republican nomination, but even if he does and even if he wins, uh, the battle goes on. It's going to be a costly battle. Uh, but I, I, I think panicking and assuming the absolute worst uh, underestimates the strength of, of uh, the Constitution and our institutions. Yeah, I just, I just think people need to be clear-eyed about what, what is possible. Um, I want to ask you a question uh, with your national security advisor and former United States ambassador to the United Nations hat on, if you would, uh, if you would uh, humor me. Semaphore uh, has a new investigation out detailing how Iran's government uh, wanted to influence U.S. policy, particularly related uh, to the nuclear deal. And the report details how some of the experts who signed on to help Iran sell its case ultimately became aides, top aides, to Robert Malley, who ultimately became the Biden administration's former special envoy to Iran. How credible and how concerning do you find the report? Well, I find it credible and concerning. I know we don't have much time here, and I know the administration is going to try and blow this off and just say, oh, there's nothing to it. Let me just say, I think based on what we know, and we don't know everything, but I think on based on what we know, we are very close to an Alger Hiss moment here of somebody that the establishment can't recognize 
uh, as having uh, put the country in danger. You know, Alger Hiss was a Harvard Law graduate, a student of Felix Frankfurter. He clerked on the Supreme Court for Oliver Wendell Holmes. People said, how can he be a communist spy? But he was. I think every reporter who has ever dealt with the Biden administration's Iran negotiating team needs to look in the mirror and say, have I been taken in? This is very serious. We need congressional hearings on it. And I think if there's any possibility that the administration thinks it's going to negotiate any part of getting back into the Iran nuclear deal, that's got to be put on dead, dead stop. I know there are a lot of other things going on in Congress, but this is extraordinarily serious. I've never seen anything like this in my own uh, diplomatic career, that's for sure. All right, we're going to have the National Security Council spokesman, John Kirby, respond to you in a second. John Bolton, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Glad to be with you. This just into CNN. A New York judge has found Donald Trump and his adult sons liable for fraud. This is part of a lawsuit brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James. The judge has found Trump, his sons Eric and Donald Jr., and others in violation of New York law. She says they repeatedly engaged in fraud by providing false financial statements to lenders and to insurers for roughly a decade. This case will go to trial next week, where a jury will decide how much Trump and the other defendants should pay. Coming up, how the words of Cassidy Hutchinson could be used in a court of law. Also today, a cascade of calls for Senator Bob Menendez, a Democrat from New Jersey, to resign. At this point, 19 of his fellow Senate Democrats have said that Menendez should step down. But nothing yet from one notable Democrat, President Joe Biden. I will ask spokesman John Kirby, White House spokesman John Kirby, if it's time for the White House to weigh in. Stay with us. To Iran in our world lead and that new report that appears to show the extent of the Iranian government's soft power and influence campaign inside the United States and Europe during this critical juncture. The Iran nuclear deal negotiations during the Obama administration. Semaphore alleges that the Iranian government-backed Iran Experts Initiative sought to, quote, bolster Tehran's image and positions on global security issues. Semaphore adds that members of that initiative made the rounds on various media outlets particularly during the final years of the Obama administration, to push the need for compromise between the U.S. and Iran. Some members of that initiative also appeared on CNN. This kind of effort is typical for countries trying to influence thought leaders and decision makers here in D.C. But the report goes on to reveal that three members of the Iranian-backed group went on to serve as top aides for Robert Malley. That's the Biden administration's special envoy on Iran who was placed on leave in June. Malley did not respond to CNN's request for comment. Semaphore says the information is based on documents and emails obtained and translated by Iran International, a Persian language outlet outside Iran. As recently as last week, that channel says one of its reporters was attacked in New York by people affiliated with the current Iranian president. CNN has not been able to verify the veracity of the documents or Semaphore's characterization of them independently. Joining us now to discuss White House National Security Spokesman and retired Rear Admiral John Kirby. Uh, good to see you. So the State Department spokesman, Matthew Miller, was asked about the story this afternoon. He brushed it off as, quote, an account of something that happened a decade ago, unquote. Which, that's a little glib. John Bolton just called the report credible and concerning. He thinks there need to be congressional hearings. Um, what's your response? Is the Biden administration taking this seriously? 
Well, this reporting just came out uh, today, Jake. So, uh, you know, we're taking a look at that, reading the reporting ourselves. Uh, and we haven't come to any conclusion about the, the press report uh, itself or uh, its validity. So I, I think we're just going to have to uh, see where this goes and uh, and take a look further uh, at the, the press reporting from, from Semaphore. I just don't have any conclusions to speak to. Now, I would add, though, uh, all this aside, the Iran deal, when signed, did set Iran back. Uh, by many, many months in terms of their breakout opportunity to reach a nuclear weapons-grade capability. Uh, and because the previous administration tore up that deal, they are now just weeks away from that kind of a breakout opportunity. So the Iran deal, on its face and in principle, was a good thing for our national security. But, I mean, is the White House even looking into this? It doesn't sound like you're taking it very seriously. No, I wouldn't say that at all, Jake. The reporting just came out today. So, obviously, we're just now reading this reporting ourselves. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of where we're going to be in terms of uh, looking at this press reporting. Uh, But it just came out this afternoon. So, we're reading through it. um, And I just don't have anything to to say in terms of or or announce in terms of, you know, next steps here based on this single press report. Okay. It came out this morning. Turning to the uh, indictment of Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman uh, Bob Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey, the Justice Department report says that Menendez shared sensitive information about the number of American personnel in the U.S. Embassy in Cairo. I mean, they have the the copies of the texts, which he told his now wife, and she passed it on to Egyptian officials. These allegations um, and many others are, uh, as of now, apparently strong enough for 19 of his fellow Senate Democrats to call on Menendez to resign. Is that not enough for the White House to also call for him to at least step down from the chairmanship of the Foreign Relations Committee? Well, these are serious allegations. Uh, we, we know that. We, we see that, too. Uh, and, uh, but right now, it is an open investigative matter, and I think we're just going to not insert ourselves uh, into that matter at this point. Uh, uh, we also have to make sure that, separate and distinct from this, we can continue to meet our national security commitments around the world, and that includes uh, the relationship that we have with Egypt, which is a critical relationship there in North Africa and throughout the region. So that's what we're going to stay focused on. It's your Justice Department making the allegation. I mean, I assume you trust that the allegation is accurate. Do you trust that the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, that he, the, the information he has, can, that he can be trusted with it? Again, these are allegations. Uh, it's an open investigation, Jake. I think you can understand that I'm not going to get ahead of that. Allegations by your own Justice Department. By the Justice Department, uh, which is an independent uh, cabinet agency. And again, they're serious allegations for sure. Uh, And, you know, they need to be fully investigated and fully uh, pursued. But that's a judicial issue that, again, we're not going to get involved in. Your White House is warning that a government shutdown, which at this point seems likely, would be, quote, disruptive to U.S. national security. It's part of the daily messaging effort by the White House to drive home the impact of the shutdown. Do you think Republican lawmakers hear you? Is there something more concrete that the White House could be doing to avoid the shutdown? Well, while, while we're out certainly talking about the impacts, we are uh, maintaining our contacts and our, our communications with members of Congress to, to, again, make it imperative that we get an appropriations deal, make sure that they're doing their job uh, to get uh, our troops paid the way they deserve to be paid and our national security interests met. So it's not just a, a messaging uh, effort. We are certainly uh, in touch every day with members of Congress uh, to try to find a, a way through here. But ultimately, it's going to come down to Speaker McCarthy and, uh, and his caucus, and in, pati- in particular, a small group of extreme Republicans inside the House that seem to be wanting 
wanting to hold the troops and our national security hostage to make a political point uh, with the speaker. Quickly on Ukraine and the long-requested long-range missile system the U.S. made, attackums. if the U.S. does eventually provide attackums, are you worried at all that it will bolster the criticism that the Biden administration waits and waits and waits on aid and finally gives in way too late? Well, first of all, I don't have any announcements to speak to with uh, that particular cruise missile system. Secondly, we are in constant communication with the Ukrainians every single day about the capabilities that they need. We have given them everything that they asked for, the military leadership of Ukraine asked for, in terms of their counteroffensive. And thirdly, we have evolved the capabilities as the needs of the war have evolved, uh, Jake, and that includes air defense, these high, these high Mars, advanced rocket systems, artillery, you name it. As the war has changed, we have changed with it, and we're going to continue to do that. Admiral John Kirby, always good to have you on. Thank you, sir. You bet. Mexico is making moves to help slow the surge of migrants at the U.S. southern border by focusing on its own southern border. We're going to take you there live. That's next. And we're back with our World Lead Mexico's pledge to deport migrants along its northern cities could help alleviate the surge along the U.S. border. Towns such as El Paso, Texas say they're at a breaking point as resources and shelter capacity continue to dwindle. But this humanitarian crisis is not unique to just the United States. It's also unfolding along Mexico's southern border. CNN's David Calder is in Ciudad Hidalgo, Mexico, right next to the border of Mexico with Guatemala. And David, tell us what you're seeing. Yeah, Jake, I think when a lot of folks think of the crisis at the border, specifically that impacting the U.S., they think about the U.S.-Mexico border. But the reason we're here is because this is very much pertinent to what is going to be impacting the U.S. in the coming weeks, if not months. And what you're seeing here, this, by the way, is the river that connects uh, on one side, Guatemala, and where we are, Mexico. It's a lot of movement, constant movement. You've got these rafts. You can see one here that's being loaded up. These are just folks who are going to go back to the Guatemala side. A lot of them are helping to bring more migrants over. And that's been a constant flow that really plays out during the day and well into the night. And they've created on this side, the Mexico side, let me just show you this, an encampment that has become almost a little city of sorts. And you can hear the bell ringing. Perhaps that's some of the vendors who are coming by. You've got setups over here where... Mexicans have made this an opportunity for business. Seeing all the migrants coming in, many from Venezuela, from Cuba, from Haiti, they come through this direction here, and then they become customers for them. But you've got what has been a constant flow. So we see those numbers on the U.S. side, and you hear reports about them fluctuating. They're down for several weeks, and then they spike, and then they're down. One thing you see almost consistently here is they're increasing, and the numbers and the influx is nonstop. It's been going up for the past several months, and they are at record levels here in Tapachula area of Mexico. That's the nearest big city. And I want you to listen to some of the migrants who we've caught up with. This is a couple in particular that I met. The wife is five months pregnant. She and her husband made the trek over the past month and a half. Take a listen. How do you feel? Sí, 
So, Jake, we spoke with them about 24 hours ago. We just messaged with them, and they've already made what is an hour's drive, but a day's walk to Tapachula to start the processing to claim asylum or get transit documents to buy some time here in Mexico before they can get to the U.S. Is Mexico, is the Mexican government doing anything to depressurize their southern cities? Interestingly enough, we flew in from Mexico City early yesterday, and on the flight with us, and we've got some video from our encounter at Baggage Claim, of all places, was Mexico's head of migration. This is a gentleman who is supposed to be overseeing this influx, trying to figure out how to depressurize, in your word, uh, these cities that are seeing this massive influx. And as of now, they're trying to slow down some of the railways that are bringing freight up to northern parts of Mexico. They put regulation on some of those to put guards to keep people from jumping on board those trains. But the reality is you have folks who are perhaps slowed down, but still moving forward. And even those who are deported, say, from the U.S., I can't tell you how many I've encountered here, Jake, who have said, yeah, this is my third, fourth, some fifth time making the trek after having been deported. It's a constant flow that seems to only be growing right now. All right, David Culver along the Mexican-Guatemala border. Thanks so much. Murder charges dismissed and then refiled, all within a matter of hours. How the case against a Philadelphia police officer took multiple wild turns today in court. We'll bring you that story next. In our national lead, we're continuing to follow a, a stunning story and today a stunning sequence of events in that murder case against a Philadelphia police officer. He is the officer who shot Eddie Irizarry during a traffic stop last month. We're going to roll the body cam video that shows the deadly shooting. A warning, the video is very disturbing. Initially, remember, the Philadelphia police did not tell the truth about what happened in that shooting. Just this morning, a judge dismissed all seven charges against Mark Dial, the police officer. But then moments ago, a Philadelphia district attorney refiled all seven charges in a higher court. And now police officer Mark Dial again faces murder charges. CNN's Danny Freeman is outside City Hall at the intersection of Broad and Market. Danny, walk us through what's happening. Well, Jake, listen, the judge in this case was abundantly clear, but very short in her decision earlier today. She said she agreed with the defense's case 100 percent after they argued that Philadelphia police officer Mark Dial in no way committed murder when he shot and killed Eddie Irizarry. The decision, Jake, took only two and a half, or excuse me, less than two hours once that preliminary hearing started this morning. And I want to talk about exactly what this preliminary hearing focused on. Basically, there were two major points. First, what did Officer Dial's partner say right before that shooting occurred? And then what did both officers see? Well, prosecutors, they called uh, Officer Dial's partner to the stand, Michael Morris, and he said that he screamed knife in that moment leading up to the shooting. But then defense attorneys on cross-examination played surveillance video that we in the public have all seen, told him to listen to it again. And you can hear on that video uh, that officer, the partner, Officer Morris, say not just knife, but also gun, including an expletive. And then you hear Officer Dial 
fire his shots. And then the second thing that the defense team really tried to emphasize is what both of these officers might have seen in the seconds leading up to that interaction. Uh, the officer uh, on the stand, who was the partner of Officer Dial, Officer Morris, said that he saw a knife. And then the defense, they put up images of the knife that was found at the scene, and it was like a hunting knife, Jake, that had a bit of a uh, handle there. Uh, and the defense team, they argued that the handle of this knife looked like the handle of a gun. Now, the prosecution said, regardless of this, he drew his weapon before he got out of the car and during a routine traffic stop. The defense said no, they were validly afraid for their lives. The defense, or rather I should say the judge in this case, agreed with the defense. And that's how you got that ruling today, Jake. How did the family react to both this, this morning's ruling to dismiss the charges and... I don't know if you've spoken to them since the charges were refiled, but if you have, to that. Well, the first thing I'll say about that second part of your question, Jake, is there is a planned rally that should be kicking off any moment now. We'll hopefully get some reaction from the family about those charges being refiled with a higher court. But to put it frankly, Jake, there was devastation the moment that uh, these this decision was read from the court. You had one side of the courtroom that was pretty much filled with police officers. They cheered. They stood up. They uh, applauded this decision. But on the other side, the family of Eddie Irizarry, they were in tears. Uh, take a listen to what uh, one relative of Irizarry told me just after that decision. It's videos everywhere. The neighborhood, witnesses in the neighborhood proved, they proved that my nephew did not come out of that car. He locked the doors to his vehicle. His windows was up. Where's the threat? Even if he has a small pocket knife, where's the threat? Where is it? So you can see, Jake, an incredible amount of emotion coming out of Philadelphia today. As you noted at the top, the district attorney, they have already refiled these charges again, but this time with a higher court. And Jake, I'll say they are the same charges that were just dismissed at this lower court, and that includes murder. Jake? All right, Danny Freeman in the great city of Philadelphia. Thank you so much. There is so much more to discuss from my interview today with Cassidy Hutchinson. She has been, of course, a key witness for the January 6th committee. She's also testified before a Georgia grand jury, as well as with federal investigators overseeing both the January 6th investigation and the classified documents case, how her words could be used in cases moving through court right now. That's next. We're back with our politics lead and the interview we showed you earlier uh, with former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson. A reminder, this is what Cassidy uh, Hutchinson told me about helping her former boss, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, from keeping President Donald Trump out of jail, his stated desire, and whether her testimony might result in Trump going to jail. Every day was a hair on fire day. We were swimming to stay afloat, but most of us were drowning. So when Mark said that that day, I was alarmed because it was one of those moments for me where I was thinking, like, I, I thought that I had a grasp on what was going on and I realized I didn't. But I did take Mark seriously in that moment. And in that moment, for me, in my service to Mark, I wanted to make sure that I did whatever I could to help Mark achieve his goal. Um, to but keep Trump out of jail. Correct. I came forward to testify with the information that I knew. And most of the information that I knew could be corroborated, corroborated by other people. I hope that what I testified to would cause other people to come forward and testify truthfully. 
And we're back with our panel. Ellie Honig is joining uh, our panel. And we should note that CNN will re-air the full interview tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Ellie, from a legal perspective, I'm wondering if you heard anything in the Hutchinson interview we did that could be of legal significance getting the president into even more hot water, especially uh, when she writes in her book that Donald Trump told Meadows about his loss this is embarrassing. I don't want people to know that we lost. For sure. I think Cassidy Hutchinson is a uniquely powerful witness for the prosecution for a few reasons. First of all, she had access. She was in the room. She was by Mark Meadows' side. She was there for some conversations with Trump, which brings me to the second point. If you listen to her, she's very careful. She doesn't overstate things. She says, here's what I know. Here's what I witnessed firsthand. And here are some other things that other people told me. I wasn't in the room, but Mark Meadows told me such and such. The next reason is the content of what she says. That point, Jake, when she has testimony about Donald Trump directly acknowledging that he knows he lost, that's the whole ballgame. That's the most important single contested issue in this trial. And then the last thing, and this was a moment that struck me in your interview with her. At one point, you showed her the mugshot of Mark Meadows and said, what's your reaction to this? And I was sort of taking note there. Like, how, is she going to dance on him? Is she going to be vitriolic here? And she said, no, it, I'm sad. It didn't have to be this way. And to me, that shows me that she's level-headed, even-keeled. It's exactly what you want in a witness. What information would prosecutors in any of the cases against Trump and his efforts to overturn the election be looking at in either her book or any of these interviews? Yeah, so everything she says, by the way, in her book and interviews is fair game. And if and when she takes a stand, she can, and I'm sure will be cross-examined on all those things. But she has been remarkably consistent. Number one, admissions by Donald Trump that he knew he lost. Number two, she has given us the best insight into what Trump was doing during those key moments, his failure, his refusal to act. And number three, his acknowledgement about the crowd, the crowd that gathered on the ellipse that day. She said this publicly in her congressional testimony that he knew they were armed, and he said they're not here to hurt me. All three of those things, I think, are really key points. Is there anything, Congressman, that you learned from her book uh, or any of the interviews that she's done surrounding the book that you wish that she had told uh, the hearing, the committee last year? Not really, because I think she was very open with us. A lot of what we, the threads that we were able to follow from her, she obviously said. There was nothing I heard where it's like, oh, that would have been a good one to pursue. The thing about the committee is we were time limited. You know, we knew that at the end of the year, we had to stop. So there was a point at which there may have been more threads to pull. We needed another year, another six months to do it. And hopefully DOJ has kind of picked up on some of that lead. But I just think seeing the personal side of her, I mean, I knew the impact it had on her, obviously and what we were doing. But just to see, you know, having to hide basically in Atlanta and in a hotel room for a year or more. I can tell you the last couple of years were fairly rough on me and my family, but I wasn't, you know, unable to go out in public. I couldn't imagine having to be sequestered from anybody seeing you in public. And Jamie, part of the reason Cassidy Hutchinson says she's, she's speaking out now is because she's afraid of Donald Trump getting elected, getting the nomination right. uh, and beating uh, Joe Biden. She says... Uh, he's not fit for office. Here, here's how she describes it. I think that Donald Trump in a second term does not have any, would not have guardrails. I think we saw that at the end of the first term with how things played out after he lost the election. He violated our Constitution in multiple ways. It is, it is completely fine to wage or to file lawsuits in sure. countries or in states. But what is not okay is when you threaten and assault the Constitution and our institutions of government. I would not put it past Donald Trump, Jake, it, to, to put those institutions of government in a worse position that they were in during the first term. 
It's one of the most powerful things I think she said to you, first of all, because this is a young woman who was so loyal to Donald Trump. She wanted to go to Mar-a-Lago even after January 6th and continue to work for him. So not only was she an insider, but she was someone who still was in the fold. And, and she's come to this conclusion. I think the other reason it's important is what we hear from Donald Trump every day on social media, these posts. Uh, he continues to be an election denier. The big lie continues. And he continues regularly on social media to attack our institutions, to undermine the Department of Justice. So she knows it firsthand. Uh, but we're also hearing it straight from him every day. Yeah, no, absolutely. I- I'm wondering uh, what you make of this as a conservative Republican. Uh, the fact that this, this, that Donald Trump is, remains, um, in all likelihood, he'll be your your nominee. Well, it tells me that conservatism is not real in how it's described today. There's a few people left that actually believe in a conservative view of government. The rest have become like authoritarian, and it's actually more become about own your enemies, fight back. I mean, Donald Trump has not even tried to hide retribution after he's reelected. I am your vengeance, or I am your retribution. So Cassidy's right about the guardrails, and the, the thing that worries me even more is this acquiescence of my party and the fact that now you're going to have people that put people in place and knowingly weed out the people that actually would be the guardrails against that. You know, you're not going to have the John Boltons who are there to kind of pull him back from abandoning the Kurds. Now you're going to have, uh, trust me, any job in the federal government, you can find somebody willing to take that job and totally acquiesce to Donald Trump's wishes. So the guardrails of democracy, yes, they exist. The guardrails of our country exist, but they are manned by people. And you can change who's manning those so one of the things she writes in the book is that Meadows took a document, uh, a classified document, Crossfire Hurricane, the uh, Trump-Russia investigation, and gave it to these two far-right, uh, right-wing media personalities who towed the MAGA line, and that uh, the White House counsel wanted it back because there was stuff in there that was classified, and it ultimately got back uh, to the White House. Right. I mean, if it is exactly, you know, the Meadows disputes this. He said that it was unclassified by Trump. Yep. But I asked Hutchinson about this. She says that's not true, and that's why the White House counsel, Cipollone, wanted it back. Right. If it is how she says, and I have no reason to doubt it, but if, she is, if it is how she says, is that a crime? Yes. If it is as she says, it's mishandling of classified documents. Now, this is going to come down to, at this point, he said, she said. So the question is, is she corroborated? Is there any record of these documents being Presumably declassified? Presumably Cipollone would corroborate Exactly. It. That's the guy you want to talk to. But if it happened as she said, yes, that's criminal. All right. Thanks one and all. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the brand new lawsuit today against Amazon, accusing the online marketplace of running a monopoly. Our money lead, Alexa, can you define antitrust? Today, the Federal Trade Commission and attorneys general from 17 states filed suit against Amazon.com. They are arguing that the e-commerce giant is a monopoly and it's one that abuses its power, they allege, in order to keep prices high and push its own products at you at the expense of everyone else's. Amazon denies doing anything wrong. With this suit, the Biden administration is now trying to break up three of the biggest technology companies around. Amazon, Meta, the owner of Facebook, and Alphabet's flagship, Google. Depending on how these trials come out, the Internet may look very different in a few years. This programming note, if you missed the full interview, you can see it. 
with Cassidy Hutchinson I'm talking about. We're going to re-air it tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.